He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. Okay, welcome back to the show. We are so excited to have a long debated topic. We have lots of long debated topics on Honestly Unorthodox, but perhaps one of the most popular is one that is related to children and parenting and ADHD. Do I have ADHD? Does my child have ADHD? Is it completely made up? Let's ask the ADHD dude, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And it's ADHD dude. ADHD. <laughs> Everyone else always leaves off the last uh, D there. Is it, did, is it, did I say ADHD dude? Yeah. Yes. Why is that so? Why is that so easy to to make that? I don't mistake? Everybody does that. It's interesting. Yeah. But it's the double D. Having... It's the ADHD dude. It's the double yeah, D. Yeah. I guess that's probably what messes it is. people up. Oh yeah. Man, you know what, Ryan? This seems intentional. <laughs> <laughs> With us today, we also have panelist Adam from Florida. What's up? So, Ryan, to get us started, I first of all would love to know how you went from Ryan, licensed clinical social worker to the ADHD dude. Yeah. So the very short version is I'm a uh, school social worker by training. Um, Started working in uh, special ed schools as soon as I graduated from graduate school. Um, And that's what kind of put me on this path. Um, So yeah, that was that was kind of it. I mean, I've always really focused on um, more working with kids with behavioral challenges. For in my private practice, forever I specialized in ADHD and autism. Um, decided to move away from autism and just focus on ADHD. And uh, the way ADHD dude started was I um, took a course like four years ago or five years ago to learn how to design an online course. Um, and uh, I, you know, never, you know, like most, I think people who go into, uh, you know, social work or, you know, the mental health field didn't really understand that all this extensive training I've done outside of school was actually a marketable skill. <laughs> um, so when I started posting, you know, videos on social media of some of the things I do, um, it just started getting traction. And yeah, that was kind of it. Very cool. So yeah. when when you were trying to learn how to create a course, you're saying that you, you kind of became ADHD dude in learning the skills to literally do like the digital aspect of it? Yeah. Part of learning, part of creating this online course was I had to create a Facebook group. Well, okay. I had no interest in Facebook groups. And then I did that. And then, yeah, just started getting some traction. And one thing led to another. And, um, you know, I reached out to Attitude Magazine, who's like the big ADHD publication, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, eventually and said, here's my stuff. Here's what I do. And they said, Oh, well, we'd like you to do a, um, you know, a presentation for us. So the first presentation I did for them, um, I, I called it, you know, why therapy and social skills groups don't work for kids with ADHD. Cool. Um, and nobody knew who I was and something like 12,000 people signed up in advance. And, wow. and I said, Oh, this must be resonating with somebody. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. That's <laughs> Adam, what do you think about social skills groups? as they're uh, the way that they're designed now. Uh, I ran a social skills group for some ADHD slash autism kids. And because when we're in Connecticut, you can have both of those covered by insurance and we just didn't have a big enough group. So we had to join them both together. So that was really <laughs> interesting when you have autism <laughs> and ADHD clients in the same room and they're generally similar in terms of intellect, you get some interesting yeah. dichotomies. But I, I mean, I think, 
social skills instruction is beneficial if it's done intentionally and you have mm-hmm. like a, a vetted curriculum and you have you know goals that are associated with whatever the core deficits are. But I think a lot of times it's just an excuse to get people together and um, possibly bill for insurance money. I don't necessarily yeah. think it's the most beneficial way of going about services. And kind of hoping the kids through some sort of strange osmosis will just magically, if they coexist in the same space, will develop mm-hmm. skills right. to right. socialize appropriately, yes. yeah. which, is, which is, I'm sure, why I'm assuming was the re- part of the reasoning behind the title of why your social skills groups aren't working. Yeah. I, you know, the other thing I'll tell you that's interesting just about that field, um, you know, outside of the ABA field, you know, the obviously the mental health field and the speech language pathology field are, you know, female dominated fields. Mm-hmm. And as I kind of immerse myself in the social skills world, so to speak, what I started finding was it's a lot of very well intentioned women teaching overly formal etiquette to boys. Um, that what had nothing to do with whatsoever with the way boys communicate socially or develop friendships with each other. Sure. And I just said, this, this has to change because this is, you know, boys don't go up to each other and say, you know, what are your hobbies? (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Or how's your day going like that? You know, and that's the kind of stuff I was seeing taught all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They'll like put each other in a half Nelson to, uh, (laughs) to find common ground with each other. And, um, and now I think especially now it's increasingly difficult, um, to, for a lot of female practitioners to accept that they might have a harder time relating to the ways with someone like you or Adam could, could connect with male clients, um, especially in the culture that we're in. Yes. (laughs) Um, the, the article you sent me, I'm going to actually read the first few sentences of this because it's not shocking, but... Um, I yeah. figured it wouldn't be. To you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. A mom brought her six-year-old daughter into the office with a fever and a sore throat. I asked the little girl to open her mouth and say, ah, she shook her head and clenched her mouth shut. Mom, it looks like I'm going to need your help here, the doctor said. Could you please ask your daughter to open her mouth and say, ah, mom arched her eyebrows and replied, her body, her choice. <laughs> Adam, you have an expression on your face. I do. Um, Tell uh, me she's, thinking. She's, par- she's partially right. It's important to teach autonomy. It's important to teach boundaries. It's important to teach all of those things. However, um, you're sick. You got to go to the doctor and open your mouth. <laughs> not a whole lot of choice in, in no. involved. In if you want to get better again, like to, to take a framework from a, kind of a different perspective, it's not a good behavior or a bad behavior, but does it lead you to the outcome you want? If you want to get better, you have to open your mouth so I can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan, do you see a lot of this politically motivated parenting in, I don't want to say the clients you work with, but I guess in the field of, of social work, I would say that I don't with the population I work with because mm-hmm. I think I turn a lot of those parents off or my I should say my content turns those parents off. Sure. But I do see a, a good amount of it. Um, what, what I would say is that I've seen an increase in the past few years of kind of this confluence of parents creating victim narratives about their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. so, so, you know, quote, he was masking all day at school. So that's why he, it's okay for him to come home. Right. And treat me horribly. Mm-hmm. Right. It's justified mm-hmm. or, or this, you know, well, I'm going to treat them as they're my partner in parenting. 
right? Yeah. So, so removing the parent-child hierarchy, which is so, in my experience, you know, and what research shows is so important for kids with neurodevelopmental differences who tend to see the world very concretely and mm-hmm. need things to be clear and concrete for them because they don't do well with the abstract. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so I, I would say a lot of that. And then I think the third thing I've seen this increase in the past year or two um, are, are parents kind of, um, I'm not, I don't want to use the word, the term performative allyship, but are kind of taking this obsequious tone to saying anybody who identifies, any adult who self identifies as having ADHD or autism, their lived experience must be right. And mm-hmm. that holds more credibility than professionals. And that's what's the most frightening to me. It is. Okay, you said a few things that I, I wanted to, to touch on. There, there was a lot packed in there that, I, that I'm excited to dive into. I want to rewind to one of the first things you said about the, the hierarchy between the parent and the child. Do you think a lot of this is motivated by parents uh, becoming increasingly sensitive to their child being in pain? Or is it I- something else? Yeah, I would say I think it's motivated by parents wanting to do the right thing and wanting to protect their child mm-hmm. um, from experiencing discomfort. And and I think part of what's happened is as we've moved, um, you know, uh, Dr. Michael Gorian uses this term resilient, resistant culture. Mm-hmm. I think as we've moved toward this resilient, resistant culture, it's become harder for parents to tolerate seeing their children temporarily uncomfortable. Because they believe that it's more painful than it actually is, or or uh, that's what I'm still trying to figure yeah, out. I think it's my experience is that they believe that it's going to cause them some kind of trauma. So I think our culture has moved towards calling any type of discomfort trauma, mm-hmm. and and we have a lot of trouble discerning real trauma from <laughs> temporary discomfort. And I think a lot of it is is that you know just in in regards to your question, a parent brought up to me the other day when we were working on setting boundaries with their 15-year-old, you know, the mother said to me, well, if I, you know, when I try to set boundaries with him, he says, you know, if you do this, I will never forgive you. She said, and that made me take pause and think maybe I shouldn't do this. And and I said, and what, what does that mean he will never forgive you? Does that mean he will never stop loving you? Does it mean mm-hmm. he will be temporarily upset with you? Or does it mean he's trying to manipulate you because now you're setting boundaries with him and he's used to pushing you around? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so parents who, who take their child's word because they believe that, or maybe they've been coached to believe that lived experience is just as, is to be taken just as seriously as science and logic and evidence. Do you, for those that actually find you to be someone that they, they want to work with, where would you start with someone who considers lived experience to be, uh, I guess, equivalent to logic. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I try to take a very neutral approach with this and I explain to them that, you know, first of all, and we're seeing this increasingly because somebody in social media identifies as having a neurodevelopmental difference, that does not mean that they were actually diagnosed. Right. Right. There's a right. lot of self-diagnosing going on right now, particularly with, um, young adult women. And I'm mm-hmm. now, and now I'm even seeing that with, um, with clinicians self-diagnosing yes. themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of that. So I say that's number one. Number two, because somebody says that they have lived experience, that does not mean they've ever educated themselves on their con- on their condition, right? It right. doesn't mean they've ever read a book. It means, doesn't mean they've ever done work on themselves. 
doesn't mean that they had supports. Um, so I think you need to take that into consideration as, as well. And, you know, the third thing is that, you know, do you want to go by somebody's quote lived experience, which is their unique experience versus evidence and data <laughs> and things that have really been looked at, right, in a, in a scientific way? Are there any people that come to you who are really set in their lived experience mindset um, that have kind of changed or shifted gears based on the information you've given them? I don't think so because you know what? I think people who that's their belief system, I don't think that they're interested in, in what I offer or they're offended by what I offer. I find. So yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm changing anybody's minds <laughs> at yeah, all. Yeah. yeah. I, I can tell you though, I mean, and this is particularly something I hear from parents in my Facebook group or whatever, that um, I, I think that what I try to teach parents resonates because it reflects on their experience. And I've had a lot of parents say, you know what, I thought that maybe I'm, I was doing something wrong because I wasn't going along with this whole let kids watch, have screens in front of them when they eat meals and let them dictate how things work in the house. So mm -hmm. it's validating for me to hear you say it's okay for me to be authoritative, right? And that's backed by research. That's not an opinion. Right. Yeah. Isn't that kind of scary that someone would question their sanity for, for something as simple as, no, you cannot watch the iPad <laughs> while you eat dinner? I, I would say yes, but I think for somebody who spends a lot of time in Facebook, you know, groups geared for, you know, parents of kids with neurodevelopmental differences or mom True. Facebook groups, um, mm -hmm. there's, you know, it's that collective voice of, you know, you know that's wrong and this is right. So I think mm -hmm. it's I, I don't think it's hard for people to question their judgment, um, because particularly if they spend time on social media. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're becoming very chronically online. And the, and the people um, I started, I'm about halfway through Gene Twain's new book, Generations. And mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to to read about millennials who are very much chronically online. And um, I'm technically a millennial. The people my age are either uh, first-time parents or a little bit older than me. They're parenting elementary age kids. It's very interesting watching um, people who are chronically online try to parent. Mm -hmm. um, and I say this in a way that that's I'm trying to be really objective. I'm not a parent, so I don't have many legs to stand on here. Um, but but it is really interesting the. The, the mental gymnastics it takes sometimes to, to free up ourselves from guilt that we feel from disciplining kids. Right. You know, I, I regularly think about, so I have a son um, who, and he's kind of, he's what really put me on this path of, you know, learning about social skills and executive functioning because mm -hmm. um, he needed help with all those things and I couldn't find help for, for him. Um, and I think about, you know, my son's 25 now. And mm. if, if, you know, these Facebook parent groups existed when he was younger, I would probably be questioning myself a lot. And, and I always say, thank God they didn't. Thank God my only resource was like these you know, Yahoo groups. A book. Where, <laughs> right, a book or Yahoo groups. And that was it. And the Yahoo groups didn't really offer much. It was more people right. telling stories that would take five hours to read because of how long they were. Sure. You know? Yeah. Sure. So, so I think to your point, I look at myself as having an advantage just because I, you know, my son was coming up in a time before social media became really a, a big thing. The social media thing is interesting. Um, I was born in 83, so I just turned 40. And, you know, I lived without social media and now I'm living with social media and as a parent. And it's it seems like it 
it overly validates the feelings that you have as a parent when you have to be authoritarian, you have to set boundaries. And don't get me wrong, I don't like the feeling that I feel when my kid pushes back on the very reasonable boundaries that I'm setting. But I know through what I do for work and through other people that I have conversations with and research and things like that, that boundaries need to be set at an appropriate level. But if I focus on how I'm feeling about it, then I get validated by all of these people that have never met me and don't know my kids about, oh, like you shouldn't do that. And you should, you should honor your feelings and their feelings. And then I'm not setting boundaries and I'm choosing that very immediate gratification of, oh, I don't, I don't, my kid doesn't hate me or they're not saying they'll never forgive me. But then down the line, what am I teaching them? You know, Mm -hmm. like if you had parented Ryan, in some ways that people are probably advocating for you to parent with your son when he was younger, he probably wouldn't be as well off as he is now at 25 years old. Right, right. When when you were talking about that, Adam, one of the things I thought about was the first Facebook parent group I was ever in was a special needs parenting group in my community where where I lived. And, you know, and I was in the field at that time. And one of the things that, you know, the, the more immersed I became in the autism field or working with kids with autism was I started realizing how common it was for, you know, a kid with autism and typically one of their parents to have a very codependent, enmeshed relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I just realized this is just something that occurs naturally. But what I saw happening in that first Facebook group I ever was in was that I saw parents normalizing and encouraging each other's codependency with their children. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I said, this is really toxic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm because this is normalizing an unhealthy behavior. And then, you know, a possible toxic codependent relationship at, you know, right when Facebook had introduced for me in 2006 um, becomes normalized and then the toxicity meter gets pushed and then that becomes normalized. And then eventually you're so far in the weeds and you're co-sleeping at 13 years old. And you're like, what is going on? Like, what what is happening? Like, but that's what they need and that's what they've been used to and they don't want to deal with all of the... Um, repercussions in terms of bad behavior or bad feelings that come about from breaking this habit that should have been yes. broken when they were four. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I see a lot of this specifically in special needs parents, specifically those whose children don't have a, a diagnosis like autism, but whose they, they believe they have something like pathological demand avoidance, which I really want to get to a little bit later. But for the sake of right now and, and trying to remain on this toxicity codependency topic, it very much screams Munchausen's by proxy to me. Like th- these parents seem desperate for their child to be disordered in some way. And I'm wondering if, if you see a similarity between those two as well. That's a great question. I think it's something that I've thought about a lot. Mm-hmm. And and I did initially think that, but what I think it is more is it's for a lot of parents, it's feeling a sense of community with other parents who are struggling. Mm. So, you know, if I self-diagnose my child, right, with, with this, then I'm part of an instant community, you sure. know, right. Yeah. And, and I do, I think it's more that I think it's, it's parents wanting, wanting to feel connected and not alone. And the way they have to do that is is through is through this and through pathologizing their child, but I think there's also a piece of this, of you know there's valor in suffering, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm suffering because my child's you know challenges are so significant. So when I express my suffering in a public forum, I get social validation for that. 
Mm-hmm. Kayla, I know you've had conversations with your husband mm-hmm. about the difference between like millennials and Gen Xers and parents and stuff like that. Ryan, when yeah. you were just talking, I'm thinking about like the generational differences between my parents and me and now my son and my daughter. Back when my father was growing up, um, he's 70 ish. Don't quote me on it, Dad. Don't listen to this podcast. Um, so <laughs> they viewed uh, mental health and special needs as almost not something to be ashamed of, but something to like sweep under the rug. And it, it wasn't worn as a badge of honor. And mm-hmm. then I think what uh, what my generation has done a really good job of is honoring that these things do exist and they need treatment and there's nothing to be embarrassed about, but not necessarily to be like, that's what you go to first. Like still that, mm-hmm. like we talked about with Will last week, that, that grit of like, I'm having difficulty. I'm going to try to overcome it on my own. And now the pendulum has swung the complete opposite direction, which is you literally, like you said, don't have any validation or honor or, or worth unless you have something that you have overcome, even if it's not real. So it's like mm-hmm. they, they went from the beginning of, no one has special needs. And if you do, you're going to be literally kept in a basement mm-hmm. or kept in, you know, Willowbrook to our generation to then swing the complete opposite direction is you're not worth it until you've got something that you had to overcome, even if it's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's accurate. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And especially um, younger millennials, I, I really struggle too with, with the concept of seeking out therapy. I, I, don't necessarily think that therapy should only be something we seek out when we're at our absolute worst or we're suicidal or or we're just in a really horrible state mentally. I also don't think it should be something that just anybody sees as a preventative measure without, I guess, uh, developing all of those those skills themselves. And, And I see that now as, you know, you go from the womb to preschool to a child psychologist. For, for really no reason at all. And I, that's shocking to me. And it, so in some ways it makes me angry because I feel like it it fills up the couches um, and takes away from people who could actually use the help. I'm not sure if I'm selfish in thinking that, though. <laughs> I, this, I mean, as a, as a licensed mental health professional, this is something I could talk about forever. So Go for I, it. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let me say this. For the population I work with for ADHD – Individual therapy is actually not a recommended treatment for kids with ADHD. The mm-hmm. American Academy of Pediatrics, who I don't, you know, I'm not with them about everything, but on this, mm-hmm. I think they're, they got they got right, was the American Academy of Pediatrics treatment recommendations for ADHD for children under six are parent training first, followed by medication management, six and over, it's parent training in conjunction with medication management. Mm-hmm. I followed them because I, I find that that produces the best results for families in the most time and cost effective way possible. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the AAP has been, done a horrible job disseminating this information. So what mm-hmm. I find is most parents are still referred to therapists. They're not told why their child needs to see a therapist. They're just told that or guidance counselors or you know school social workers And then, you know, so we're sending kids to therapy, which is not even the recommended treatment. And, you know, therapists don't get training in ADHD. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not they're not taught that. No, talking about feelings is not going to help your emotional regulation skills, you know. Um, And this is probably my biggest frustration in the field is that that therapy still a lot of people still believe therapy is the answer to everything. Um, and, Mm -hmm. And it's not. And in this case, there's not even there's no type of individual therapy, any modality that has shown efficacy consistently for kids with ADHD. 
Wow. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And that, most that people tracks, don't know that. That tracks a lot. I mean, with my own personal experience, that tracks a lot. I mean, I think from um, my son has ADHD and he struggles a lot in his individual therapy sessions. And then we're struggling to see growth coming from those sessions. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's frustrating, but it it makes a lot of sense. Also, it was so interesting to me that the first thing that anyone suggests is medication, which I understand why people Mm -hmm. suggest medication first, especially for a kid with ADHD. But the second thing that his, his pediatrician suggested was not individual therapy with a, um, a social worker or a psychologist. It was with an occupational therapist. Mm-hmm. And it was with an occupational therapist to help with buzzword incoming uh, emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. And I, and you know, the sensory integration issues and all that stuff that comes with being dysregulated while you have ADHD, whatever that, that means. Um, so, so that I think also is a byproduct of another question I wanted to kind of lead in with Ryan. With all these people seeking all these different services that possibly don't, they're not efficacious for their diagnosis or they don't have a diagnosis, it leaves people that need the services kind of wanting. And then OTs are recommended for kids with ADHD. How do you feel about like the the overuse, perceived overuse of the medication for people that are self-diagnosing and can get it through their pediatrician and or the lack of services available for people because of the overuse of people that don't necessarily require them or don't benefit from them. Yeah. So I want to mention first that the treatment model in ADHD is going towards pediatricians being the prescriber because in almost all of the country, there is a severe shortage of child psychiatrists as well as other prescribers. So, mm-hmm. and, and really you don't need a, uh, you know, you don't need to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a neurologist for an ADHD diagnosis. The most accurate diagnosis is made from collecting data from people who see the child in their natural environments. Mm-hmm. You know? right. And by the way, this comes from the medical ADHD field. This is not my opinion. The right. medical ADHD field will be the first one to tell you that we go way overboard with diagnosing kids with ADHD. Mm-hmm. So, so that being said, I mean, that's just the way things are, are going in terms of pediatricians prescribing. In terms of services, I, I look at this as there's, there's, um, there's a broader problem, which is that I, I think that ADHD is not taken seriously in our society. So clinicians aren't being trained in ADHD. Teachers don't get trained in it. Um, there's, there's very little training in it. So I don't see it as people taking away kind of, you know, services from anybody else. The problem is nobody really knows how to help families of kids with ADHD, um, in evidence-based ways because they're not familiar with the treatment recommendations. I think that's more the issue. So you're okay kind of with the pediatrician, um, the general practitioner pediatrician being the one that diagnoses and then helps with the medication management because that's the kind of the first course of action that's been shown to be efficacious? Um, I'm okay with them diagnosing if it's not just taking parent feedback in an office, if they're actually right. collecting data. Right. If the they appropriate way to diagnose. Correct. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. And then you're yeah. okay with them doing the medication management because that's been shown to be the number one thing on an individual level for that client um, that's been beneficial with them based on their age. Yeah, and it's just I feel like at this point it's just a necessity. That's where things are going. This this problem with child psychiatrists is not going to change. It's not going to improve in a few years. So so okay. we have to look at this more as this is just where the treatment model is going. Yeah. Okay. The um the the cynical again, the cynical side of me. The cynical side of me when you mentioned that ADHD isn't being taken seriously. I wonder how much of that is due in part to an increasing amount of adult women 
claiming they have ADHD. Um, one that just it, it that's very outside of the the normal trajectory and um, the demographic of ADHD, and it's very outside of the typical age of ADHD. Do you think is that why people don't take it seriously, or did you have a different reason? No, it's this is a very long-standing systemic problem that's gone on for decades. Yeah, it's not it's not anything new. Um, you know, I mean, I always tell people, and this is the truth, when I was in grad school, my training about ADHD as well as autism was probably 10 to 15 minutes in a psychopathology class one time. Mm-hmm. That was it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, so, so yeah, we just, we, I, I think ADHD is seen as a diagnosis that anybody can treat, you know? Mm. If, you know, if you do a search on psychology today on their find a therapist, um, you know, uh, oh, database. Right. And if you just put in looking for an ADHD specialist, I would say 70 to 80% of the therapists in any area will come up as ADHD as one of their specialties. Wow. Yeah. If not higher. Yeah. Is that just a marketing thing? Cause they know that that's where a great need is because people are getting diagnosed and it's such a, such a prevalent diagnosis. Or do you think that they actually have the false sense of competence to treat those people? I absolutely think it's a false sense of competence. Okay. Yeah. And Kayla, in regards to your question, you know, for, I will say for a long time, we did a poor job and are still not doing a great job, but we did a poor job of diagnosing girls with ADHD as well as autism. Okay. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, and, and particularly for adult women. So mm-hmm. I think what's happening now is we're playing catch up with that. And it's very similar to what I see happening. You know, for instance, now when, when somebody tells me their child has autism, what I tell them is, you know, um, I don't take that at face value anymore because of mm-hmm. the profound amount of overdiagnosing and misdiagnosing autism that I see. Sure. And often when we start talking, I have to point out to parents, I say, what you're telling me contradicts an autism diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? And I give them context for understanding that because somebody goes through a checklist in the DSM, right? That does not mean they holistically understand autism or how to discern the difference between ADHD and autism. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that autism is having its moment right now because, you know, the neurodiversity term has become part of, you know, our lexicon. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and this will die down. But, yeah, I've in my career, I mean, I've, I, you know, I'm older than you guys. I mean, I started, you know, I graduated grad school in 98. I've never seen anything like what's happening right now with the autism diagnosing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's been kind of I mean- a slow build. Yeah. Do you think it's been slow? I feel like it, it was pretty abrupt. Maybe I was just kind of looking the other way for a while. I mean, I would say it's, I think what was the slow build was developing awareness of it. But I think mm. what's happened now is we've, you know, quote, jumped the shark to yeah. it being from <laughs> nice. a slow build to this overdiagnosing. Yeah. You know, okay. and again, it's just because this whole concept of neurodiversity has become popular in the past few years. Right. It's so like you, diagnostic rep, uh, reparations. It's like I yes. didn't get this when <laughs> I was younger, term. so I'm going to get yes. it now. Yes. But I've the always had it. The overcorrection. The overcorrection. Yes. Yep. The overcorrection. Yes, exactly. So, Ryan, you worked with autism previously. What made you switch from autism to ADHD? What What really made me switch were two things. One, I realized my skill set is <laughs> – my skill set is in terms of working with families is not working with – parents who are codependent with their children. And mm-hmm. I had to accept, I'm just, that's not where my skill set is. Sure. Um, but, and that wasn't the main reason why the, you know, because what I typically found is in those cases, those are the families who would come see me once and they wouldn't see me again um, because they, because I think I felt threatening. 
you know, mm-hmm. to the the parents' codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why I really switched was because the ADHD community is just so neglected um, mm-hmm. because I think it's, it's it, like I said, it's not taken seriously and it's just thought of as the diagnosis anybody can treat. You know, and when I really started kind of diving deep into these, you know, different areas with social skills and executive functioning, um, what what I was seeing was, you know, there's really nothing out here specifically for kids with ADHD. There's a lot for geared for kids with autism, and they kind of have this attitude of, well, we'll just take anybody, right? That, right. like, you know, to Adam's point about like social skills groups, but but really because I just felt it's a neglected community. That's why. Okay. That's really interesting. So with, with the, um, as we segue into different, uh, different diagnoses that people are giving themselves and their children, <laughs> we, we talked very briefly, Ryan, before about pathological demand avoidance. Do you get a lot of ADHD parents claiming PDA that, that work with you or that at least reach out to you? I will have people bring it up and then I educate them about it. But I think the people who are the parents who are self-diagnosing their kids with it, um, those are not parents I think are interested in what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, because, you know, what my whole thing is about teaching accountability and, and looking at what are we doing now to shape kids so they can reach their full potential. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not where that mindset is at, I, I think. How does that yeah. conversation go from your side when, they, when they're talking about PDA? Like I'm a parent, I come in and be like, you know, my kid's got – got PDA or I think that this and they're, they're saying it, but they're not actually saying the initials. Like, how do you respond to that? Well, yeah, for, I find, I mean, in, in my case, they, they will always bring it up, say somebody suggested this, you know, mm-hmm. they don't, I'm, again, the self-diagnosing parents are not coming to me. What I do is I give them context for understanding it. And then I share the story with them, which I think you guys will appreciate. I, I explain that in all my years of doing this, I've seen one student who I would say fit that profile. Okay. At at the school I worked at. And this was a school for primarily kids with autism who had the most severe behaviors that none of the other special ed schools in the whole Philadelphia area would take them. This was their last stop. So this one boy who, who accurately fit this PDA profile, you know, would become violent when there was any demands placed on him. Um, This school had a really strong BCBA and implemented, you know, a program when he came to the school And he went from not being able to do any work whatsoever to a few months, you know, being able to fully do work like his classmates. Things weren't perfect, obviously, but it was a 100% turnaround, you know. So what do we call that when suddenly you you are no longer demand avoided and you can handle demands because you had a good ABA program put in place? Do we still Mm -hmm. call that PDA or what do we call that? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. a really good point. Because well, you reset his nervous system. That's what yeah. you did. Right. <laughs> you shocked it right back into play. Exactly. Right. Well, that's the strange thing that just with, with whole, with the PDA thing doesn't follow. Um, I had a conversation recently where I, I, I guess gained a little bit more insight into the, the reasoning behind PDA. And again, it, it still just comes back to me about, parents who feel guilty that they're unable to maybe connect with their kids or discipline their kids, or they can't get over their own guilt in disciplining their kids, find reasons to make sure that their children are always diagnosable. That way it almost absolves them of having to parent at all. So I would say this, there's, you know, I I think there's a lot of parents who feel powerless 
And for them, you know, labels like ODD, which I always say there's only two things in the world I hate. I hate the spice cumin and I hate the label ODD. And I guess you now the third cumin? one, I hate cumin. Yeah. I think you should leave what right is, now. What is cumin in on a regular basis? <laughs> it's like anyway. seasoning. Yeah. And, um, and I live in Arizona, so that's a little that's bit rough. of an issue. Yeah. That's like, rough. Uh, yeah. Something's wrong with your nervous system. <laughs> <laughs> He's PCA. He's pathologically... <laughs> Cumin avoided. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. Keep going. I interrupted you. Yeah, I think I think a lot of parents feel um, powerless, and when they hear like labels like ODD or PDA, it gives them context for understanding. This is why my child is challenging, and and now I feel a little less powerless because I can look at through them through the lens of disability. But I think to your point, and I had a conversation with one of my colleagues about this in the autism field, I think that there's a lot of parents who are scared of their child's emotional dysregulation. They're scared of their child in general. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of parents fearing that they were they will traumatize their child if they use an authoritative parenting approach. Mm-hmm. So I think when they self-diagnose them, you know, I, I think it's a way of, of them saying, right, my child has this disability. And therefore, they, you know, I, they can't handle having an authoritative parenting approach or they can't handle having me set limits with them. So in a way, I think what it does, it medicalizes behavior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And allows parents to kind of take this different mindset from it, which, you know, plenty of research shows is detrimental to kids' mental health. And the, the medicalizing of behavior um, seems to fly directly in the face of neurodiversity, which a lot of PDA people support. Yeah, this whole thing about, you know, I'm I'm neurodiverse affirming and my child has PDA, but then I'm going to pathologize them with yeah, I don't yeah. I don't understand it. It's quite confusing. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I mean I feel like every other sentence is a direct contradiction to the other. And in the scenario you gave of the child who supposed may have fit the profile for PDA and then through uh, you know, environmental management and behavior management and basic things that we would do all of a sudden, they are not pathologically avoiding things. Maybe they're just avoiding things to the same degree that most any human would. Um, it's, then it becomes, you know, is pathological devoid, avoidance supposedly acquired? Uh, are people born with it? The woman I spoke to told me that kids are just born with a faulty nervous system. I wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that, you know, it's supposed to be a profile of autism. But what I've seen now is that it's right become this this umbrella label for anybody who wants to self-diagnose their child, you know. And and I think one of the things I want to be careful about is that I'm not – I don't want to belittle or minimize the experience of parents who are scared of their kids because there's plenty of people who do have valid reasons to be scared of their kids, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. but, but at the same time, you know, pathologizing them with labels that are not medically recognized um, mm-hmm. and taking this, you know, a hands off approach and just mm-hmm. treating them basically as infants is, is not helpful. And, and we know that. I think yeah. every parent is scared for their kids and then sure. coupled that with a kid that engages in, you know, dangerous behaviors. They're then scared of their kids. It's a very, very um, difficult position to be put into. And sometimes they're just grasping at whatever life preserver is thrown their way, whether it's an acronym for PDA or CPTSD or anything out there that are both ASD, ADHD. And it yes. just feels like, like you said before, like they now have a sense of community and something they can hold on to. And then it just kind of runs amok. So a few months ago, I mean, to, to Adam's point, 
Um, somebody sent me the Facebook page of this social media influencer who is talks about pathological demand avoidance. Um, and I will say in this individual's to this individual's credit, they admit that they have no credentials in the field. Sure. They use their doctorate in a completely separate field as I think kind of their label. But mm-hmm. um, what what they say is that, you know, I take direction from um, the lived experience of adults with autism who you who identify with autism as a culture and identity. So, wow. and, yeah. So yeah. it's not even a diagnosis anymore. It's a cultural, it's a culture and an identity. Well, there, what this individual who does this PDA Facebook page is saying, yeah, that their, their information is, is, comes from people with autism, with lived experience, who autism is mm. their identity. Whether they're self-diagnosed or, di- you know, actually diagnosed, that's probably irrelevant. Um, but, you know, one of the things watching this individual was some of the things they teach are let kids eat with screens in front of them. Um, mm-hmm. And one time they spoke about, you know, their child kicking, physically kicking them off the sofa and said, that's just a data point, you know. Um, wow. and, 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 and the other one was, you know, their, um, their seven-year-old who uses a pacifier and they taught their, they taught their seven-year-old who uses a pacifier if a friend comes over and says, why, do you, why are you sucking on a pacifier? They taught them to say, well, I'm PDA and it's soothing. Oh, and, no. and that made me think, so this is an individual with a doctorate, okay, who's teaching their seven-year-old to create an identity for himself, right, and to use a pacifier. And, you know, for me, that's somebody who's not well. Mm-hmm. That's somebody mm-hmm. who wants to keep their seven-year-old as an infant. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and you know what? And I'm, not, and I'm not making a judgment about them. But mm-hmm. what terrifies me is that there are parents and even professionals listening to this individual and taking their advice that has no mm-hmm. basis in research and taking advice from somebody who's mentally unwell and mm-hmm. using that as a guide to parent their children. And mm-hmm. that, that is what is most concerning to me because – where is this going to lead? You yeah. know, and, and, and I don't see a course correction coming in this anytime in the near future. Mm-hmm. You know? And where I believe it's going to lead is we are going to see a generation of individuals, um, you know, with neurodevelopmental differences who meet the criteria. And I don't like this term, but I'm going to use it, who meet the criteria for failure to launch and mm-hmm. who are going to have tremendous mental health problems. And mm-hmm. and I hope this I hope this just stays a very small amount, but people like this individual I'm talking about, you know, they're they're getting bigger. They're not they're not yeah. going away. I was gonna say, and Adam, I want your thoughts on this too. Within me and Adam's field of behavior analysis, I'm seeing a lot of this PDA stuff start to gain some quite a bit of traction, um, mm-hmm. along with alongside the trauma informed care, which has very quickly become let them do whatever they want, otherwise it's going to end in you know, a trauma, a traumatizing experience. Um, and it is terrifying. It's terrifying. And again, just like you said, I, I don't want to take away from the fear parents must feel in, or, or just anger or guilt that comes with a child who they feel like doesn't respect them or love them. I can't imagine what that must be like. Um, on that same token, there has to be some understanding that allowing an eight-year-old or seven-year-old to to suck on a pacifier or, or allowing your 23-year-old to lay in bed naked next to you is right. is not normal or okay. Well, that's, that's a conversation that I had with a um, transition 
professional. So like the 18 to 21 year old Mm -hmm. age group, specifically Mm -hmm. with autism about sexual health. And she was, she gave a talk and then we elaborated a little bit further on it because that's the field that I was working in at the time. And she said, when my son was just starting puberty, I had to think of all the skills that I was teaching him at 12 and 13 years old and how those would be received when I die. And he has to go to a group home when he's 40. And if I wouldn't be okay with it in that situation, I couldn't teach it in this situation. So what she did, and it opened my eyes in a really big way, um, she didn't teach masturbatory or sexual health in the bedroom because he was most likely going to be in a group home setting with a roommate. So mm-hmm. teaching that he also, she also needed to make sure that he never associated females or males actually in this situation with sexual gratification. So what mm-hmm. she did was she taught in the shower, because that's really the only place as an adult that it's permissible for you to mm-hmm. be alone and with a device. So mm-hmm. it's a shower mounted device because if he got bigger and eventually he did get bigger, she was then going to be a victim. And Mm -hmm. at no point in time, if he was 25 and out in the community at his at his assisted job, if he engaged in sexual assault or, God forbid, something worse than that with somebody else, the law would not care. Oh, you have autism. It was a poor planning from back when he was 12 and 13 years old. So it's like when this, you know, Ryan, when you're talking about that, that client or the person that has a pacifier at seven, then 13, how are they going to get a job at 22? if They have a pacifier and that's the way that they self-soothe, you know. Or how are they going to be in a meaningful relationship with someone when overall society views that as not an appropriate social behavior to engage in? Right. You know, uh, to, to one, one of the things that I found really fascinating as somebody not in your field is the way how ABA has become vilified um, and politicized, right, as, as kind of, you know, be oppressing people with autism. And to Adam's point, do you know how many young men I've, I've worked with who were on the verge of getting arrested because of sexually inappropriate behaviors? Um, and the only reason why they didn't, it was because of their age. If any mm-hmm. of the things happened that, that I had dealt with, had they been over 18, you know, there, there would be no excuses for them. Right. And, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and so, so when I hear people vilifying ABA as being oppressive, you know, my response to them is, so how are you going to deal, you know, with, with the um, 17 year old masturbating on the bus, you mm-hmm. know, in front of a little girl, which I've dealt right. with, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, are you going to say like, oh no, we can't teach you social skills because that's oppressive, right? Mm-hmm. That everyone's mm-hmm. just going to have to adapt to your neurodiversity. It's sure. a very, I see a lot of naive thinking and a lot of denial of reality of the educational needs, particularly of people with autism. Um, and, and like Adam was saying, I mean, that's what I find really terrifying is that we're going to have is, is are we going to see an increase in individuals who lack social understanding entering the criminal justice system because this, you know, their, their parents took this approach of that. I'm not going to oppress them with ABA, right. Or I'm not going to oppress them by teaching them social appropriateness, right. The world has to adapt to their neurodiversity. That's frightening. I think. Right. Cause it's it not going to happen. It's Never. not going to happen. Right. The Never. world's not going to, I mean, that's a, that's a huge self-correction that we as a world will need to do mm-hmm. to accept those types of behaviors due to a diagnosis or just the situation in general. Right. Well, it's just, it's silly to assume that, that, um, you know, stigmatizing, you know, masturbating in front of a toddler, um, is the same as, as like people think that, um, 
if we look if we see something like that um, as negative, which it obviously is, then if the person has special needs, then they jump to, well, why are you stigmatizing people with special needs? It's like these people are, they feel like they have their own set of consequences and their own set of social norms. And in some circles, it could be argued um, that, you know, you could, there's a fair amount of deviance from the social norm. Um, But to what degree, like, what will it take for, for people to go turn around back towards reality and say there is no society in which it's okay or acceptable, whether you have special needs or not, to masturbate in front of a child? I mean, it's the same thing as a lot of these activists who, who are now, instead of using the word pedophilia, they're saying, uh, what do they say now? Um, Minor attracted person. Minor attractive. Oh yes, person. I've seen that. It's yeah. the same thing. It's that Orwellian like double speak. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> to answer your question, it's going to be um, legal troubles. Um, it's mm-hmm. going to be a combination of that. And I think it's going to be also the tipping point, unfortunately, for some families will be when there's violence in the home and mm-hmm. significant violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, this is a question I pose to my students all the time. Do you think in these sorts of situations, it's actually helpful um, for there to be a stigma? Stigma with a diagnostic label or? Um, I guess a stigma related to inappropriate behavior. So maybe it wouldn't be a stigma then, or maybe if like the, if there is enough of a social disapproval, uh, when we see someone engaging in really inappropriate behavior, um, regardless of a diagnosis. So, I mean, the neurodiversity community wants those to be completely eradicated. Like they want us right. to embrace all of these differences um, right. as they're just differences. Well, well, like Adam said, that's never going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's never. it's a very idealistic, naive thinking that's based in an ideology and not in, not in reality. You know, mm-hmm. and, and my feeling is I don't think we have time to even give attention to that. I mean, there's yeah. we, we all as professionals in this field have bigger things to, to you know, to, to worry about. I think, mm-hmm. you know, where, where my concern stems from is is how do we help educate parents who have, you know, adopted or adopted this ideology without mm-hmm. realizing that maybe they're following an ideology and not research or data or evidence. Right. There's something that comes to the forefront of my mind. Um, I don't know if it's actually still on the, the air. Uh, the TV show Little People, Big World. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that so the dad, the main character, and the character, the main you know subject of that of that series was a little person, and he made his livelihood by making adaptive devices to sell to businesses, hotels, convention centers oh. to take the normal quote unquote, size doors and shelves and make them accessible by these little people. And to flip that around, what's more reasonable? Have a stool available for the less than 1% of the population that comes in that needs it so they can reach the thing in the you know hotel that you're at or to make everything low enough so that a little person can have access to it. And I think that the former is more reasonable than the latter. Like if you're dealing with such a small percentage of the population that engage in an inappropriate socially stigmatizing behavior, it's easier to teach that one person or that small percentage of the population how to act appropriately rather than have the other 99.9% of us say, ah, it's okay. You can masturbate on the bus. 
Like just be yeah. okay with that. And then not, therefore also discount that little girl who experienced it situation and be like, oh no, you shouldn't feel the way that you feel because that, that person is allowed to do that. That's causing Yeah, this is the new normal. Right. Right. That, that's um, Ryan, a really good comparison. Ryan, um, from a parental standpoint and from a selfish standpoint, what would you say to a new parent of a child that has autism? Because you did say that the, probably the best course of action is parent training and medication management. So are there any resources that you could recommend from the parent training standpoint for, for us to seek out? Yeah. So just to clarify, that's the recommended treatment for ADHD. Yeah. Right, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. I switched it a little bit, but yeah, it was about yeah, yeah, ADHD. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah. Well, you know, not to do shameless self-promotion, but I did create the first parent training program ever designed specifically for parents of kids with ADHD. But, um, you know, here's here's the thing with, with parent training. There's different ones out there um, with, with evidence behind them, and they're, they're difficult to find, which is part of the problem. Um, and, and the other aspect is that, you know, a lot of times it's kind of dependent on who is facilitating them. I mean, that's a feedback I've heard from parents who have done what's called PCIT or PMT parent management training. Um, mm -hmm. my, my feeling was because after I studied all of these, that there were none that really addressed executive functioning. And that's personally what I wanted to focus on, um, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of bring that aspect in. But I think the number one thing that I get, so I have a membership site where I do the parent training. And the, the number one thing I get the most questions about is around behavior, particularly around inflexibility and emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think if I would give any parent any advice would be to understand what parental accommodation is and how to stop accommodating your child. Because when you accommodate inflexibility, it causes inflexibility to get worse. When you accommodate anxiety, it causes anxiety to get worse. When you, you know, accommodate emotional dysregulation, it causes it to continue and often get worse. So I think that's that's the big term for me is the parental accommodation piece, which is something that the um, the mental health field has not done a great job educating parents about. Okay. Yeah. So Ryan, as we wrap up, I um, I want you I want to give you a chance to tell people where we could find you. Is there anything exciting that you're working on? You have the first ever parent training. Um, parent training, training, <laughs> the yeah. ADHD training for parents. Um, is there anywhere else that, that you wanted to tell people where to contact you or what we should read? Yeah. Into? So my, uh, YouTube is my main thing, my ADHD YouTube, YouTube channel. Um, okay. I have an attitude magazine page where you can see my webinars and articles I've done for uh, attitude magazine. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook and all that social media stuff as well. Yeah. Um, I, I will tell you guys, you know, one of the things that I've been having to think about a lot is where do I go from here in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, my content? And part of me has, has been thinking because of what we're talking about, that I'm going to have to put something out there for parents who at some point decided to, and I'm not saying this with any judgment, made the choice to kind of use this ideological parenting approach. Um, sure. And now they're experiencing repercussions of it. And, mm -hmm. and not, that's not exactly where, you know, my passion is, but I feel like that's what I'm going to have to focus on moving forward because I think this is going to become a really significant problem. Um, mm -hmm. I'll still do all my ADHD stuff, of course, but um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking more about the long term and how are we going to support these families who, who are really in a difficult situation with young adults who are not functioning as young adults. Right. Yeah. I think there's a huge market for that considering how much 
um, how much we're inundated with both uh, legitimate information and what what's the term misinformation disinformation both. whatever you call it yeah yeah, yeah. all of the above D yeah. all yeah. of the above <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you guys, that's for me why why I really try to, you know, base the content I put out. I, I you know, I, I want to cite research in it and, and evidence and, and base it on that. And and if I'm going to share an opinion, I, I try to make it clear that this is an opinion based on experience, um, because I, that's what my main concern is that I want people to start going back to deferring to information from professionals that are based in facts, not opinions or ideology. Right. That's what's all we could hope for, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Really appreciate talking to you. <laughs>